0: I want to thank Ava for the reading of our passage this morning. She read the, the, the big, crucial point of the passage, verses 6 through 8. If you want to find yourself in the text with me, we're in Luke chapter 18, and we're going to be reading through verses 1 through 8 in the text this morning. We're going to play a little game. We're going to start off by just looking at verse 1, and I want to see if you can guess what the big idea of this passage is from Luke 18, verse 1. Listen to what Luke tells us. He says, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Anyone struggling with the big idea of the passage this morning? It's pretty simple, right? Pray always and do not lose heart. Sermon over. That's it. Well, the sermon isn't over because uh, we understand that big idea. We we get it as a concept. But I want to suggest this morning that even though we understand that about prayer, it's not always easy to apply it. It's kind of like that annual visit to the dentist every year. The hygienist always asks us the same question. They say, how often are you flossing? How often? And they're not asking the question because we don't understand that we're supposed to be flossing. I mean, I think from childhood, you've heard regularly, you should brush your teeth and floss every day. Every day. But Here's the thing. 7 out of 10 of us are not flossing every day. It's one of those things that's easy to say, floss every day, but it's a lot harder to do because sometimes we get busy. And I know for the 30%, they're thinking right now, ew, they don't floss every day. Well, here's the thing. Some of us sin. We do. We get busy and we forget to floss. And then when we've sinned enough, We actually have to endure a torture session from the dentist called scaling so that they can instill the fear of flossing back into us again. You see, in our passage this morning, Jesus is assuming that you struggle with prayer. And you will struggle with it. Uh, In the context of this passage, Luke 18, there's a very specific reason that he says that his disciples might struggle to pray. You see, in Luke 17, he spent his entire time of teaching talking about the signs of the end times. And he says that as the disciples are going through this period, there is going to be a longing for the coming of the Son of Man, meaning that as you go through the end times, there's going to be an intensification of persecution and, and, and a moral decline within the culture. And the disciples are going to long for Jesus to come back. And that will be in contrast to the rest of the world because the rest of the world... They're just going to go about doing life as they normally do it. He says that it will be like in the days of Noah. And what was it like in the days of Noah? Well, Noah's off building this ark for this rainfall event that no one's ever experienced before. And everybody else is out there living large and partying. Well, that's the thing. Jesus says as this intensification comes with the end times, the believer is going to long for his return. And his big idea is very simple. The application, pray always, don't lose heart while we wait for the return of Jesus. We ought to keep praying. But, how do you do that? (laughs) How do you... Pray always. We talked about this with these parables, didn't we? we? We said, you know, some of the things that we say theologically, they're not so tangible to us. I don't know about you, but when the Bible says pray always, I go into my space and I think, how am I supposed to do that? Like, how does one actually pray always? So we need this brought into the realm of the tangible. We need a picture of it. And that's why Jesus gives us this parable Of the persistent widow. And let me read it to you, and then we'll unpack it by looking at the various characters that Jesus talks about in it. He begins in verse 2. He says, In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Let's begin as we look at the characters by thinking about the judge. Now this judge is called the unjust judge. And as Jesus describes the judge, he says two big points about him. He says he doesn't fear God and he doesn't people. He doesn't care about them. So basically, what we learn about this judge is he is the antithesis of the two greatest commandments. He doesn't love God with all of his heart, and he doesn't love his neighbor as himself. Now, the judges in Jesus' time period were notoriously corrupt, bad figures. Uh, the occupying force of this time was Rome, and they would install local leaders, magistrates, and judges in vid- uh, villages. And, and one of their big priorities was that these judges would accomplish the priorities of Caesar. So they were unscrupulous. They were immoral. They couldn't they care about the, the common person's experience. And the Jews hated them for it. They hated them as much as they hated the tax collectors. In fact, the honorific title that these judges received was they were called Prohibition Judges. But the Jews actually changed their name by just changing one letter in the Aramaic and they would call them Robber Judges. And the judge in this passage, he knows he's a scoundrel. Listen to what he says of himself in verse 4. I do not fear God and I have no regard for man. He's in it for the money and the reputation, not for the justice. But now we have to go to the other end of the socioeconomic ladder. So here you have this judge, he has all the power, and then Jesus tells us about this widow who in this culture represents none of the power. You see that things are wrong for her first when you recognize that she doesn't have a man in her life to go to court and plead. That was very much a part of this culture. The men were the ones that went to court and pleaded the cases of justice. So think about her situation. She's a widow, so obviously she doesn't have a husband. But she also doesn't have a brother or a father or a son, or a close relative, or even a close neighbor, a male neighbor who would be willing to go in and plead the case on her behalf. In every sense of these words, she represents powerlessness. She's helpless. She's alone, deprived, unloved, uncared for, and most of all, she's desperate. She walks into this court setting. She meets this judge. And it's very clear that the judge doesn't care to help her at all. I mean, why would he help a widow like this? She can't pull any political strings and exercise favors on his behalf. She doesn't have any money to bribe him with. This is the kind of person that doesn't do something for nothing. But listen to what the text says, and I love this. Verse 3 says, she kept coming. She kept coming, and the language leaves open the possibility that she's not just showing up to court day after day. No, she's meeting this judge everywhere. I mean, anywhere that this guy goes, this widow seems to find herself there. If he's walking around with his colleagues, she's crying out for justice in the open marketplace, crying out for justice. The guy is going to sleep at night. She's standing outside of the gate of his own home and crying out for justice. He can't get any sleep. It's like death by thousand paper cuts you know it made me think of a story that, you know that you have powerlessness speaking to power in this situation and, and sometimes you, you come to find out that persistence is really all it takes to accomplish something big. When I was in college, I heard this story of these two little old ladies that had a serious problem. There was an adult bookstore coming to their little town, and they did not want that to come into their little town. They knew that for this business to open up, that it would degrade society. Not only would it be bad for the young men, it would also be bad for marriages, and, and beyond that, there would be ripple effects. So they decided that they were going to take it in their own hands to stop this. The first step along the way is they go to the town and they ask the town to deny the permit for the business. Well, the town says, "...our hands are tied." there's nothing we can do about this. So then they go to the business owner and they say to the business owner, you can open this shop, this business anywhere you want, just not in our town. He says to them, it's a free country, ladies. I can do whatever I want. Well, they must have taken that piece of advice to heart because they conspired a plan. All day Every day, through the operating hours of this business, they would place themselves just outside of the boundaries of the private property, on the public property. All day, every day, as people are walking towards the store, they would pull out a camera and flash a picture of the person. And they had nothing better to do. They did it for months. Months. The business owner was losing customers at a rapid pace, and then he went to the town, and the town told them him the same thing he told them. We can't do anything about it. Our hands are tied. Within six months, that business closed down. You want to know what's most funny about all of this? They never loaded any film into the camera. I mean... It's like this story, right? The judge, the unjust judge, gets creamed by a helpless widow. Listen to his words again in verse 4. He, he says it. He says, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Now the Greek word there, For beat me down is a boxing term. It envisions like a, a knockout punch to someone's eye. And that's what she's doing. You begin the parable feeling really bad for the helpless widow. You end the parable feeling really bad for the badger judge. As a parent, you know just what he's going through. Our children have meditated upon this passage. They know how to ask a question 10 million times to get what they want. Now, How are we to apply this passage? I want to suggest this morning that a lot of us have interpreted this passage wrongly. I want to suggest that Jesus is actually telling us this story to overcome a big lie that maybe we have quietly adopted. And the lie goes something like this, that God is reluctant to answer my prayers. Now maybe you've never said that aloud. Maybe you've never spoken those words before, but quietly, somewhere deep inside of your heart, you wonder, "Does God really want to answer my prayers?" And in this context, Jesus is assuming that the disciples will experience that thought process as they go through the persecution of the end times. But there's other contexts. We've gone through hard times. Some of us have endured significant loss and tragedy or relational breakdowns that have just hurt us to our core or economic crisis or whatever it is, and we've asked the question, where is God? Is he hearing me? Is he reluctant? It it, it sometimes feels like when you pray in circumstances like this that you've called that, that bad customer service representative for that shady company you know how it goes. You call them, you spend 45 minutes on hold, and then when you finally get to talk to someone, they've been trained to, to be a brick wall to your questions. I remember I had an experience like that when I was in college. I had foolishly given my credit card number to a telemarketer now, she told me when she called that I had, had won free magazines. And, you know, I'm a young guy, and I'm like, oh, this is cool. I'm going to get, like, muscle and fitness and that kind of stuff, rolling stones. So I say, sure, you can have my credit card and, and open up this account so that I can get my free magazines. I'll tell you, at the time, I didn't have two pennies to rub together. So it felt like a gut punch when I opened up my credit card statement and the first $239 hit my credit card. Now I called up the, the, the customer service of this company immediately and I said, what's going on here? Why are you charging me right now? And he said, well you agreed to these purchases and I said, no I didn't. You guys are scamming me right now. You told me that I would get free magazines and I just had to do this. And she comes back and she says, well then, sue us. Now, she knew she had me. You think a young college guy that doesn't have two pennies to rub together has the money to sue someone over $239? So now the conversation is like, well, how do I get out of this and the conversation ends with me paying an early exit fee of another $239. It felt like I was talking to the unjust judge. You see, the problem is it's not that there are people out there like that or companies out there like that. I mean, live 10 years of your life, right? Right? you live 10 years of your life and you come to the realization that all of that is baked in the cake. You know that that's out there. No, the problem is that we've come to believe that maybe God is reluctant in that sort of way. You think to yourself, well, is God really going to listen to my petty prayers? I mean, he's the God of the universe. He has so many things that he's overseeing and organizing. Is he going to listen to my, my cries, my complaints, my petitions? Does he care? And I think that we've come to that belief system because we've experienced some form of reluctance from people within our spheres of relationship. It could be parents that were just so preoccupied that didn't have time for us when we were children, or a spouse that's just always glued in front of the television, or worse, a situation like this widow. I was in a pastoral call recently, and one of the pastors said something that's going to stick with me for a long time. He said, you know, when I'm in my church, people, members of the church will come up to me and they'll always begin sentences like this. They'll say, Pastor, I know you're busy, but... And he said, you know what I do? I I stop them dead in their tracks when they say that. And he says, hold on a second. I want want you to know something. I'm not too busy for you. You're why I'm here. Now, I thought that was such a wise statement. And I've got to say, I agree with him. I'm not too busy for you. Now, I'm not God. I can't have like 100 conversations at the same exact time. But you're why I'm here. It turns out that ministry goes like this. People are the mission. And when you come to realize that about ministry, all of a sudden you get a lot more time for people. You're not in a rush to kind of do tasks and accomplish things. And I want to suggest to you that that is more representative of the heart of God. He's not too busy. In fact, this is what Jesus' big point is in the parable. Ava read the the central verses of the text. I'm going to read them to you again, verses 6 through 8. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So the parable is a parable of contrast, and the contrast is between a very reluctant judge and a response of God. That's what I love about this parable. Now, when you look at the two words, reluctant means unwilling. Reluctant means that I have to pastor you in order for you to take me seriously to gain your attention. Responsive is totally different. Responsive means ready. It means interested. It means enthusiastic. That's why we have to correct a common misperception about this parable. Oftentimes, when we hear this parable taught, it's taught that, hey, if you're praying big things to God and it doesn't seem like God's moving or working, well, then you've got to pester them. You've got to just pray with more intensity and more frequency, and then God's going to do things in your world. But here's the thing. That's the opposite of what Jesus is saying. He's saying you don't have to bother God. Because God is intensely interested in your prayers. He's interested in your concerns. He's available to hear you and he's enthusiastic when he gets to say yes to something that you've prayed for. I love this point. We persist in prayer, not because we have not yet gotten God's attention, but because we know we have it. We have it. He cares. He willingly hears us. And I want to suggest that if we struggle with prayer, with the prayer habit, then either, one, we just didn't know that about God. We had a different picture of God in our mind, and it was a wrong one. Or two, We're not convinced that we can trust God to that degree. We don't really believe that about His character. But I'll tell you, when you come to realize this about God and to trust His character in this, it's going to dramatically change your prayer life. You'll want to come to Him. You'll want to pray always. You're not going to lose heart because you know you have a good Father who hears you. Now, we're talking a lot right now about the why we should pray. See, Luke 18 is telling us a lot about who God is, and it's giving us a solid application. Pray always, do not lose heart. We also got to think about the how. How do I pray? What kind of prayers does God look for from his people? And to get the answer to that question, you have to look over at Luke chapter 11. In Luke 11, in verse 1 Disciples ask something big of Jesus. They say, Lord, teach us to pray. Now think about a mentor figure in your life or someone you've looked up to. When you look up to someone, you want to model or mimic their their best qualities. So Maybe you had a father that had an incredible work ethic and you think, I want to have a work ethic like that, or a a mother who was compassionate or empathetic and you say, I want to be compassionate like she was. Well, in the case of Jesus' disciples, what they wanted to mimic was Jesus' prayer life. And then he teaches them the Lord's Prayer in verses 2 to 4. The text says, when you pray, say, Father... Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptations. Church, this is the how. This is the how. These are the big themes of prayer that that should be finding their way into your prayer habit. I'm not saying that you have to just recite the Lord's Prayer day after day, but you should go through the motions of the themes of what Jesus is talking about in the Lord's Prayer in your prayer life. Now, let's just kind of walk through these briefly together. The first one is it says, Father, hallowed be your name. So this is praying for God's glory and honor. Now, I want to suggest that the prayer begins here because God is ultimate and everything else that follows is penultimate. It's of secondary concern compared to this great concern, which is God's glory. That's why our mission statement begins with worship. It's three words, right? Worship, transformation, mission, but it always begins with worship because god is ultimate and we are not the second part of the prayer is your kingdom come praying for kingdom advancement and we're not just praying that people would come to christ that we desperately want to see that but we also want to see the social effects as people come to christ in droves it's a big deal and we're also praying for the lord to to return that's the ultimate fulfillment of his kingdom Give us each day our daily bread, praying for provision. You know that it honors God when you ask him for the things you need. He loves when you come before him and ask him for what you need. We were driving up. As you may know, I'm departing tonight for an international trip and I had to get a COVID test for that. And we were talking about God's provision in the car as a family. You know, it's funny that This was the first time this ever hit me, but it really did. We were talking about it and I said to the kids, you know, I've lived for 37 years and there's not one day where the Lord hasn't provided for me in 37 years. And some of you have lived longer than that. 37 years, day after day, 365. You do the math because I can't in my head right now. But that is a lot of days. And the response to that should be gratitude, like thanksgiving. And the outflow of that should be generosity, taking care of other people that God's put on our heart and needs and burdens that he's placed on our heart. Forgive us. This is confession. This is agreeing with God about our sin. And then the horizontal transformation of confession is that I would forgive Others, And I want to suggest to you this morning that some of you are having hindered prayer lives because you are holding on to anger and unforgivenness and bitterness towards a brother, another brother or sister. And the Bible says that that will dramatically impact your prayers unless you learn how to let that go. Bitterness is that poison— that I drink hoping that it's going to hurt the other person. But here's the deal. It never hurts the other person. It only ever hurts me. Some of us think that I can't forgive another person until I get closure from that person, until I've sat face to face with them. What here's the deal. Closure is overrated The Bible does not tell us that this side of heaven that we're always going to get closure. Sometimes I have to actually live with the unresolved tension that either this person's passed away or this person's moved away or they just simply don't care about what my problem is. And I have to just say, you know what, Lord? You don't command closure. You command forgiveness. And so I'm going to forgive. The final, of course, is lead us not into temptation and I view this as a twofold ask of the Lord. One is, of course, the moral implications. Lord, I don't want to sin against you. But the second I want to suggest is for those of you who have ongoing suffering in your life, sometimes you're tempted to doubt God's goodness. Now, some of you could preach a far better sermon on that than I could. See, these are the things that we need to be praying for, these are the themes of prayer. And Jesus tells us in Luke 11 that God is so responsive to these kinds of prayers. Listen to what he says in verses 9 to 13. I tell you, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. I mean, what father among you, if a son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give us the best gift of all? Which is the Holy Spirit of God, the indwelling presence of God with us. And we have to ask a big question though, right? Because here we are, we're looking at two passages that are telling us how responsive God is, and yet, we all come to the place in our prayer life where sometimes we hear nothing or we hear no. Why? Well, I think you probably already know the answer to that question before you ask it. Why do you tell your kids no? Why? I think There's a couple of reasons, right? I mean, sometimes I tell my kids no because what they're asking for is not good for them. Uh, My son comes up to me and says, Daddy, can I eat this entire box of Lucky Charms? And the answer is no. No, you may not. And I need to tell him that because he hasn't learned the skill of delayed gratification yet, right? So in his mind, he is a sugarholic and he wants it and he wants it now. We were just actually talking about this in the car. I said to the kids, if you could eat as many chocolate bars as you wanted, how many would you eat? And they're all like, oh, yeah, I would just eat a ton. I would have 10 of them. Bear was like, yeah, I would eat until I'm sick, Daddy. And that's the whole point. You haven't developed the character to say no because what you get in the immediate you don't realize impacts the future. And let's just be honest. We're like that, too, with the things that please us. We can't get enough. We don't know when to say stop. The other time we tell them no is when they want something now that's not yet Good for them, right? Uh, it, it will be good for them at some point, but just not yet. Like, my son would love it if I threw the keys to the minivan at him and just said, You know, son, I know you're 11 and all, but you love bearded dragons, so you drive down to the pet store on your own and just have a good old time looking at those bearded dragons until your heart's content. Or what if your 14 year old daughter came up to you and said, Daddy, I love him. We just met and he's just perfect in every way. He just tells me I have beautiful eyes. Can I marry him? No, sweetie, you may not marry him. Now, why do I have to say no in those two instances? Isn't it good at some point for them to learn independence? Isn't it good for them at some point to get married? Well, of course it is. But they don't have the experience or the character yet to deal with those things. I believe that sometimes the things we're praying for, they're heaven things. They're the things that you have to have the perfect character of Christ to truly handle those things well. Like, we pray about health a lot, don't we? And we ask God to Heal us and to keep our physical bodies well and to heal the people in our spheres of relationship that we love. And I tell you, that's a great thing to be praying for, but sometimes we almost pray into that as if we're asking God to deliver eternal life. Here's the thing we don't have the character to handle eternal life yet, and God knows this. I I think of the story of King Hezekiah. He's laying on his deathbed, he's dying. He prays for 15 more years of life, and the Bible tells us that he didn't manage those 15 years well at all. He squandered them. You know, there's, there's that day as I look ahead where I just can't wait to walk my daughter down the aisle. I just can't wait to do that, especially as a, if I'm walking her towards a man who loves the Lord and is committed to care for her and provide for the family and raise kids in Christ. Just not yet. That's somewhere down the road. That's time and distance when character and experience have converged together to where she's now ready for those things. And in the same way, your heavenly Father knows you and he knows what's best for you. So what if we changed our prayers to say something more along these lines? God, I trust you and I trust your wise leadership I want this right now, but I don't know if it's best for me, and if I don't know if I'm ready for it yet. So your will be done. Your purpose is accomplished. You see, you can trust God with yourself. You can't trust you with yourself, but you can trust God. God with yourself. We're learning that in this parable as we're looking at prayer. We're seeing that that God's character, his compassion, his kindness, his goodness, his mercy, his willingness to forgive. All of those things give him the right to manage our prayer requests. But you know something that we didn't recognize in the parable yet? The last thing that I want you to see is you can pray to God because of who he is, but you can also pray to God because of who You are in Christ. We're talking about your new identity here. Think about the widow's identity for a moment. And this is not good. I'm glad that our culture has changed in these ways. But in this culture, she has no identity. I mean, no one cares about her. No one knows her. No one loves her. She literally has to pester a judge to death in order to get what she wants, what she needs that the same is not true of you in your relationship with God. Jesus talks about your new identity, he calls you God's elect in this passage. The scripture talks about your identity all over the place. It says in certain passages that you are an adopted, firstborn child of God. It says that you are made in the image of God, that you will have the glorious purpose through all of eternity of actually mirroring the glory of God with your life. You are redeemed by the Son of God. So you can pray, you can pray always and not lose heart because of who God is, but also because who you are in Christ. So let me ask you the question. I'm going to be a good dentist this morning. How often are you flossing? How often are you praying? And I mean really praying, praying always and not losing heart. Well, let's talk to our Father right now and ask Him to build that into us. Psalm 55 says, But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and He hears my voice. Lord, we thank You for the reoccurring assurance from the Bible that You do hear our prayers. I want to tell You, Lord, this, this day... That it is such a privilege and a blessing to be able to access in prayer, have access in prayer, the God of the universe who created all things, who knows all things, and yet who willingly meets us 24 7, 365. Thank you that you are loving, compassionate, merciful, and good. Thank you that in Christ, I am also able to approach you as a chosen one, created in your image, redeemed. We are so grateful for this, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.